brothers and sisters, if you will, remain standing and open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Our focus will be those last five verses, verses verse 32 through 36. And before I read from that passage, from that text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, great Father of light, the God that knows all things, we humbly bow before you, acknowledging that this word is spiritual, it's heavenly, and it is heavenly discerned, it is spiritual truth that is that needs, O oh God, your hand to help us understand it, that you would put your hand upon us and give us understanding, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would open our spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear spiritual truths and duties, Lord, that belong to us. And those duties would be performed by the power of the Spirit working in us, that good work, Father, that you are doing in us, that which is pleasing in your sight. So, Father, bless us, our minds, our bodies, Lord, all that we are as we bring this word to application and understanding. Help us, O God. Live it out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 32. So here now the, the, living, the word of the living God. And now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the text of Scripture that I've chosen to launch this attack, spiritual attack, upon the horrific practice of abortion. It's to bring a greater awareness to us as Christians what God's word has to say about not only abortion, but about the environment of abortion. Abortion has not, does not exist in its, in, a, in its own vacuum. There's a context to it. There's a sphere of ideas, philosophies, and even what we might call idolatry surrounding this crime, this practice of abortion and we as Christians need to know about it we need to see it for what it is we need to we need to strengthen our Christian worldview our biblical worldview so that we can engage in this dark and present reality that we live in that we might profitably engage in it in order to see God glorified and see many lives saved in the process I think it's without a doubt that we should all, or that we would all agree that the crime of abortion should be stopped 
it should cease. And we have an opportunity to encourage our representatives, the Georgia legislature, to do that very thing. Because that bill is going before them and it, it needs a sponsor and we need to be praying for that, that it would have multiple sponsors, not just one. And it would be uh, well received and it would be agreed upon and signed and read and approved and voted in as law for the state of Georgia. And that would begin our repentance as a state. That would be the fruit of beginning repenting of this this horrible moral evil that we've allowed way too long. Now, let me say this. If there is a, there is a legitimate weight of guilt that the church bears in this, and that's not saying that you're for abortion. I, I know you're not. But when we talk about the church at large, there is a justifiable weight of guilt that belongs to the church in America forever allowing abortion to begin with. If Christians, if all of the professing Christians and churches had risen up and a Opposed such a verdict as Roe v. Wade, it would have been easily dealt with and it would have passed away. The Christians have been complacent far too long. We've been silent far too long. We've been compromising far too long. Listen, if it was not for Christians, you would still see chattel slavery predominantly over the earth because it was Christians that attacked that institution. Now, slavery still exists in many different forms. Trafficking, human trafficking is another form of slavery that is, as we suspect, allowed in certain places among certain people. I mean, we're still waiting for the Jeffrey Epstein list to come out and be made public. We're still trying to figure out how somebody can be accused of trafficking young girls and there's not a list of those who well received them. I mean, that on its face is obvious, isn't it? So we bear some guilt in this. And we should repent of our complacency in in whatever way that looks like. And I'm not certainly trying to put anything upon any of you. I'm sure many of us are active in giving and supportive and in many ways do what we can do. And that's all that God requires, that we do what we can do when we're able to do it all for his glory, that we would work against such a horrific moral evil. Now, Psalm 8 verses 32 through 36, these five verses act as a conclusion 
to these previous, to these eight chapters. And I'm in agreement with that scholarship. These five verses succinctly sum up what chapters one through eight lay before us. And that is, beloved, if you're going to have a a healthy life, a life-giving life, so to speak, that, that superlative life upon life, the blessing, the happiness, and all that comes with it, then we must be instructed, we must pursue this wisdom, this divine wisdom that comes from this instruction, and then we must put into work to application, we must work out that doctrine and that understanding, we must work out these morals and ethics that we're learning in order for us to have this life, this blessed life, this happy life that has been laid before us. And he concludes with this verse, he who sins against me injures himself. Now, I'm not going to go through these eight chapters. You can do that on your own private devotion. Start working through chapters one through eight and list out how sinning against God, your morally sinning against God leads to death, destruction, bodily ailments, hardening of the heart, confusion of the mind, that's all part of injuring oneself. And he, and he concludes with this, all those who hate me love death. Why? He's recognizing the fact. Solomon is recognizing the fact that when we don't live for God, serve God, worship God, obey God, then we are, well, we hate God. And all those who hate God love death because they're devoted to all of those things, well, that God hates. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that text of Scripture. I'll say more in the coming weeks. I want to begin working on what we left off with last week, and that was a sort of addressing of the Ten Commandments in a way that that clearly shows the heinousness of this sin of abortion because it violates every commandment. And and now there's a hermeneutic here. I'm not making this up. There is a hermeneutic involved here. That is, in letting Scripture, interpreting Scripture, and so that we understand that we're not just looking to to uh, put into Scripture eisegesis what's not there. Now turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and I'm going quickly. I'm not going to have a, a commentary so much on these things. I think it's obvious He says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. James is letting us know that there is a a connection, a connection, a, a, a chain reaction, if you will, of God's moral law. To violate God's moral law is not just to simply violate it at one point. There's a a reaction to the other commandments. Some of them break three or four. Some sins break all of them. 
And some sins break all of them in, in multiple degrees and facets of those commandments and even increase in its grievousness in God's sight. And brothers and sisters, this is how we calculate. I mean, this is how when we look at the word of God and how we look at the moral law, we can ask ourselves, what's God's will for me? What should I do? Should I do this or that? And you got to begin to ask yourself, well, if I go against God's word, what are the effects? What are the consequences? And to the degree that that sin is aggravated, it increases those consequences of breaking that sin. Now, consequences are something that we are doing real hard as a culture to do away with. We don't like consequences. We want to be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it without any consequences. You might label this and it falls under this idea of victimhood. Victimhood. Now, you may not know this about me. I'm sure, you, in fact, I'm sure you don't. I don't know if I've ever revealed it. There's, there are a couple of things I'm very passionate about uh, outside of the pastorate. And that is, number one, human trafficking. I'm passionate about its crime, its moral evil. I, I, I am, and I, I give to these causes. I'm passionate about the suffering of children. They have a soft spot in my heart. I, I, I don't like seeing children suffer. I don't like watching commercials where there are children that are in great pain and in need. I don't like that. And I'm committed to some of these, uh, I'm committed to some of these organizations and some of these causes. And yet at the same time, beloved, all that informs me as a Christian regarding God's moral law helps me and guides my sensitivities, my zeal and my affections and my understanding of those things that I find myself committed to. And so we have to address this idea if we're going to make sense of this debate that, well, continues, and I don't know why this abortion debate even continues, it's, it's not a hard debate to win, okay? But because Christians are compromised, it just lingers on. But this idea of rights rights. I'm just going to say two things about rights. Again, because it's not the focus of the message, but it's important to the message. We, we hear, I have a right. It's a woman's right to have an abortion. She has the right to choose. I mean, we hear that. But we need to be able as discerning Christians, informed Christians, knowledgeable Christians, that, that that's not all-inclusive, is it? There are civil rights and there are moral rights. What we're talking about this morning are moral rights. We're talking about how a sovereign God, the living and true God, has determined 
how all men everywhere in all time will live, what they will practice, what they will be devoted to, what they will do, what they will neglect, what they will, will, for, what they will put away from them. All of these duties, these are, the, the, we're addressing those moral duties that we owe our God as Christians. Now, the world owes it to God as creator. They're not, this is not, they're not indifferent to the moral laws of God. They owe him obedience by virtue of creation. He made them and he sustains them. And they owe him obedience. Whether they believe in him as Savior or not is irrelevant to the moral law. Those are two motivations given in the law of God. God is creator and God is redeemer. We have double motivation as Christians. Not only is he is our creator, but he's a God who has recreated us in Christ Jesus, thus enforcing, enforcing by beautiful motivation of grace and thanksgiving and love, what? To serve him and obey him. We have a double motivation. This idea of rights. Now, again, not all civil rights. I mean, a civil right may completely conform to the law of God. It may do that. It may absolutely not conform to the moral law of God and absolutely violate the moral. But there are civil rights that we can possess as citizens of any country or any state. But civil rights have a limitation. In fact, just because, quote, abortion has been, quote, legalized, does not give anyone a moral right to do it. Now, the motivation for that as a Christian, as we understand the Christian Bible, is Judgment Day. Because there is a court, and remember we talked about this in the parable of the, of the throne. When Jesus said, you know, I was hungry, uh, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, uh, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, you didn't give me any water. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was sick, you didn't come to me. Therefore, I don't know you. And you don't know me. And what you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. So there's motivation there, isn't there? That judgment day is a motivation. That is, it doesn't matter what the courts of men determine to be right or wrong. If it violates God's law, it is, a, it is wrong, it's morally wrong, and to practice it as if you are innocent in doing so will have a great consequence on judgment day. And God will render judgment, just judgment. Now, let me just add this to the parable of the throne judgment and, well, talk about what Jesus said. I mean, if you didn't feed, clothe, give medicine to, visit those who needed it, and Jesus condemns them for it, how much more does he condemn murder? 
of the preborn. The murder of this innocent preborn child. I mean, if you, if you can't give relief to those who are living, how much that you should give relief to, how much more to those who, who absolutely, solely are dependent upon you protecting them. I mean, that's just an application. It's part of the argument. It's something we ought to be bringing up. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about these moral rights, the moral rights that our creator has bestowed upon all men everywhere, and it is our duty to do. And as we know, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, we ought to be about protecting life. Now, I want to address the first four commandments this morning and just easily, succinctly demonstrate how abortion would be a violation of the, of the first table of the law, these four commandments. I'm not going to go in. I'm not expounding each commandment. That's not the purpose. My purpose is just to demonstrate how abortion violates it, okay, for the sake of our conversation and for the sake of these, any Georgia representatives that might would like to listen to this series, for them to understand that they have a moral obligation to keep these commandments, and to see that the laws of this state conform to these commandments. And not to do so is to bring harm to the state and God's judgment. As I had a chance and opportunity given by the Georgia Right to Life to write a letter on behalf of the Georgia Right to Life to pastors, one of the, I think, key statements in that letter was how abortion has led to God judging us and that manifestation of God's judgment is all of these various ways that people destroy themselves transgenderism homosexuality a Romans 1 society isn't it God turns the people over to their cravings and their lust and the manifestation of the judgment. Brothers and sisters, it's not that God is going to judge future tense. God is judging. God is judging. And, and, and there is no doubt in my mind, historically speaking, as we looked at all of this free love society in the late 50s and through the 60s, that this, this verdict of Roe v. Wade comes to fruit. That's not accidental. You know, I, I was laughing as I've been I'm trying to immerse myself in these debates, and I'll be honest with you, it's hard to do. But I was, I was um, laughing at this idea, and this debate came up, and they said, you know, the last thing we want is for these old white men to make decisions concerning a woman's reproductive rights. And I just started laughing. Because wasn't it old white men, nine of them, that said Roe v. Wade ought to be law? Wasn't that nine old white men? I'm just, I'm just asking. I'm asking for a friend. I believe that was nine old white men that, that 
stated that the preborn could not were not people, and they could be aborted. Now I think the the obviously the accusation falls on its face, and there are other ways we could go with it. But again, it's because they don't know history, and it shows. Well, let's look at these commandments. Let's look at these commandments. So we're not inventing a hermeneutic. We have to understand, we have to distinguish rights. There are civil rights and there are moral rights. The moral rights trump civil rights when they don't comport. We live under God's moral law. We have to obey him. And it doesn't matter if men give us the right to violate that moral law. It's never good to do so. Never good. It's destructive to us. And it's destructive, listen, and we don't sin in a vacuum. You read the book of Proverbs, what you do and the grievous nature of that sin flows into other people. Look how our nation has become hardened to life itself. Part of the judgment, isn't it? We don't care about, I mean, when I say we, as a nation, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to see love and charity and, and kindness, isn't it? Isn't it, you know, we, you watch all of these viral videos of these acts of violence, and, and, and you know what you find? I can't hardly watch it. I get almost sinfully irate. Why aren't those people coming to the aid of the victim rather than standing there with their phones and filming it? I haven't figured that out yet. Why are there 10 people standing there with their phones while somebody just gets violated? That's what I'm talking about. America will continue to become increasingly unsafe as we turn our backs on God because to hate God is to love death and these things are connected okay first commandment the first two let me give you some summations the first two commandments are I'm going to I'm going to lay these out there as devotion the first two commandments address devotion first our devotion to the living and true God the first commandments our devotion to the living and true God. And when I say devotion, I mean three things. Love, service, and zeal. Love, service, and zeal. To be devoted to the living and true God is to love him. It's to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's to serve him. It's to obey him. That service is not limited to worship. It includes worship. But it, worship is distinct and special. It's distinct and special as it's connected to the Lord's day, as we shall see. But there is service. There is, that is, I am not my own. God is sovereign over me. He is my creator. He has a propriety in me. I am his possession. As Paul said in Romans, we are the pot and he is the potter. Who is the pot to speak against the potter, the creator. 
And we must remember this, beloved. A certainly evolution in all of its various forms has attacked this doctrine of creation. But you were created. You were created in the image of God. You were created special. Uh, you were separate from all the other creatures of this world that God created. And you were created to have fellowship, devotion, and you were created to worship him. And you were created to be like him in similar ways and have a great zeal and affection for truth and all that is good. Second commandment is devotion related to how we are to specifically come and worship him. How does that devotion play out in the way we worship him? It's important. The second commandment certainly forbids will worship. That is, we determine for ourselves how we'll come and worship God. That's a problem in and of itself. We're not going to go into that. And then the second thing, the second commandment forbids is superstition. We can't be willful in our worship to God, and we can't be superstitious in our worship to God. But the positive aspect is that the second commandment regulates our devotion and worship. It guides it. It regulates it. it. It confines us, if you will. It hems us in so that we can direct the proper emotions and affections and zeal to God in a way that he likes it. He enjoys it. The third commandment regulates our speech. And the fourth commandment regulates our time. In the, in the third commandment, God is sovereign over our speech now let that sink in in the first amendment debate right we already as christians understand that there are certain things that we are not to use our tongues for there are certain boundaries we are not to transgress with our tongues we'll look at that in just a second and certainly that God is sovereign over our time. Now, all these are connected. Let's go back to James, if you will, in thought and see. Uh, it, there is the living and true God. That's a fact. Therefore, because there is a God, he must be worshipped, the second commandment. And he must be worshipped according to his own dictates. Thirdly, if there, if there is a God, uh, certainly he must be worshipped. But because there is a God, we should not take his name in vain. We should, we should speak in such a way that in, in, whether his works, his, de or his deeds, his character, his perfections, all of those things in whatever way he's manifested himself, we should speak lovingly, honoringly, um, you know, reverently of God and even all those things that flow out of that. And then you see, well, if there's a God, he directs our worship. He directs our speech. Certainly then, reasonably, there must be some time set aside to worship him. And so God did that. God, in a, in a moral, um, moral law, set forth the obligation that we come to worship him and those all make sense. They're all connected. They're all reasonable. And there's no argument against them. I mean, listen, and I can't spend too much time on it, but 
when we talk about speech, the regulation of speech, all you got to do is look at the way people talk to one another. You got to look at the way employees talk to their employers and get away with it. Now, I was talking to one manager in, a, in, in, in relationship to the verbal assault that I believe they received. And the person was like, look, there's just nothing you can do about it. it it's just, it, this is the environment that we find ourselves in. Children and parents. I, I mean, you know, again, the evils of multimedia, the TikTokers and the, the well, there's some other ones and, and all of that stuff. I mean, again, ranting against the parents or showing videos of, of the teenager assaulting the parent verbally. See, that all flows out of the breaking of the command. We don't honor God. We, we don't love him with our speech. And therefore, what do we see? The connection in society. We don't honor the image of God either. Are the offices, are those in places of, 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 of authority, right? And connecting. And that's why Proverbs can make that emphatic statement All those who hate me love death. Now, how does abortion break the first commandment? Well, the first commandment, again, regulates our devotion to God, our love, our affection, our zeal towards him as the proper object of those things. Yes, we can love our husbands and our wives and our children, but God holds the supreme place of that love. God holds the supreme place of our devotion. You can be devoted to your wife, absolutely. You can be devoted to a husband, absolutely. You can be devoted to a church, but those devotions are never to usurp or even equal to that of God. He's first. He's first, and that's the point of the commandment. Everything else is secondary or or third and fourth and fifth level love. Obviously, our love and devotion is related to relationships, isn't it? Those closest to us have our greatest devotion as people. And it works out like that with the ripple effect, which is rightly so. That's how it should be. It's the same way, again, you know, uh, well, well, we'll get there. But when we look at the first commandment and we're looking at these principles of devotion, this love, this service, and this zeal, we have to look at this in our life. And, and I'm only going to compare it to the negative and then move to the second commandment. And that is this level and degree of devotion and love and service and zeal towards God trumps everything else. It's first place, even that self-love. Now, let me say this about self-love. I had a very misunderstanding of self-love as an early Christian. I opposed it wholeheartedly. When I began reading the reformers in their books and really opening my eyes to what self-love is, should we oppose, and it's not all of it. In fact, even the confession says inordinate self-love, an extreme 
self-love, an exaggerated self-love. But most of the reformers, all the ones that you would enjoy reading, will sit there and tell you that it is the one natural motivation given to us by God that helps preserve our lives. Look at Proverbs 8. Do you not want to love God because you love yourself? Because you don't want to be destroyed? You don't want to be harmed? You want to bring to yourself these cursings? But no, you desire these blessings within reason, not usurping God. The love that we have for ourselves is understood. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's implied in the second commandment or in the summation of the second commandment, the greatest commandment. It's also implied in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's also used by Paul in Ephesians 5 concerning the husband and the wife relationship. How, why would a, how a man that treats his wife good and special is a man that loves himself. Because she in turn does what? She enjoys that love and affection and she enjoys it and she loves her husband. He benefits from that. Now, that's not the sole motivation, is it? But it is one. It's not the sole one. It's not the primary one. What's the primary one? To glorify God. To glorify God. And even Voss, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, says that this is a vital principle to the obedience of the commandments. Loving yourself. We might call it today self-respect is another way. You know, when you, when you um, you know, I've done a lot of interviews hiring people. And it's, a, it's interesting how they might come into those interviews, how people present themselves, right? You, you, we have that, you know, first impressions mean something. And, and, and there's, there's ways that people impress us by their appearance. And you can say as you're growing up, you know, have some respect to the image of God that you're made in and carry yourself. Get rid of this cussing, this profanity and all of these things. Present yourself in a way that is honorable before God. Have some self-respect. That's part of it. But this self-love, this inordinate self-love is at the heart of abortion. It's at the heart of the act of abortion. Why? Because of everything that leads up to it, as the confession talks about. In a violating of the, the first commandment, it's not seeing that God is our chief treasure, that God is the one who bestows upon us and blesses all of these things and they are our true delight. No, it's that we have determined for ourselves. We've become our own God. We've made our own selves the, the primary determinant of our lives and we've chosen this path of pleasure. We've chosen this path of lust. And of course, these activities, these sexual activities lead to this problem of now what am I going to do with this baby? that one thing leads to another. Now, we're told you cannot say that. We're told that in church. 
We're told, well, you can't address, you know, um, uh, those things because everybody's doing it. I don't believe that. Well, first of all, I don't believe it can be addressed. But secondly, I don't believe everybody's doing it. I believe a lot of people are doing it, but I don't believe everybody's doing it. But to live that life of inordinate self-love, gratification is a direct violation of the first commandment. It's a direct violation of the first commandment. Look at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Right after Colossians, Philippians. First Thessalonians chapter one, Paul's writing to this church. Notice what he says. He says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that Jesus, that, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, look, turn over to chapter four. Notice the connection here. This is the, the, the doctrine, and now you have the application. It says, finally, brethren, we, requ- we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you know how to possess his own his possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You see the connection? The connection there is that whatever we devote ourselves to are, is that which we serve. If, if we devote ourselves to the God of pleasure, to the God of self, to the God of lust, then we are going to carry out the commandments of that lust. Every, every false God has a set of commandments and they will be obeyed. Now, obviously, the first commandment does address atheism, and I guess that is something I need to somewhat touch on just briefly because it, too, has a direct, well, there is a direct correlation between atheism and abortion. I mean, let's forget, you know, sort of the blatant atheism that says there is no God, there's no proof of God, we come from nothing, we go to nothing, blah, blah, blah. It's just, I mean, that's absurd. That's, that, 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 whole, that whole idea of theoretical uh, atheism, it's, it's just absurd. But there are other two kinds of atheism that we should address ourselves with. One's the virtual atheism. Now, what's a virtual atheist? Well, Voss says that's the spiritual person. That's the person that's all about spiritual things, right? They're the ones that say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. 
These are the ones that have no problem with these spiritual environments, but still, they're, it's not about God. It's not about the true and living God. It's not about really serving him. It's about serving self and how self has determined what is spiritual and what is not. I'm a spiritual person. I mean, I hear this all the time. I hear all the time from Christians, professing Christians, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Oh, we don't, we don't go by any doctrine, we're spirit-led. This would be a virtual atheist. The third one is even more convicting because it's the one that I've addressed a couple of times from this pulpit, and that's practical atheism. Now, this is the one that the church suffers with the most. Now, what is practical atheism? Practical atheism is this, it's a one who professes Christ as Savior, but lives as if there is no Christ. There is no commandments. There is no Bible. There is no standard. They profess to know God, but they live like God doesn't exist. How many of those legislators, how many of those representatives do you think in the Georgia House profess to know Christ? The majority of them? I think probably the majority. Maybe it's not a large majority, but I'm going to say the majority of them. And yet how many will wholeheartedly vote to end abortion in this state, which they have the opportunity to do? That's practical atheism that's professing to know God but yet living outside of his commandments indirect moral commandments so we have to be aware of these things the Bible opposes this inordinate excessive self-love this worldliness if you will the setting of the mind the will and affections upon those things that God says well, are off limits, forbidden. Look at Colossians chapter 3. And we'll let the move on to the second commandment. Colossians chapter 3 in verse 2. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, he's not talking about not to set your mind on getting ready to go to work. Right? Not, not, not ready to prepare to have a, a supper or somebody with your family. He says, set your mind on things above as primary, not the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then also you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, here's the verse, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to what? Idolatry. The act of abortion, brothers and sisters, is a direct breaking of the first commandment. And anybody that facilitates it, anybody that promotes it, anybody that doesn't vote to stop it is breaking the first commandment when they have an opportunity to do that very thing. The second commandment certainly addresses our devotion in worship, in worship. Now, this one should be easy enough 
1 Kings chapter 18, I'm just going to mention it for the sake of time. What do we see? We see Elijah in his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Now, what's important about this confrontation? Elijah speaks with confidence and faith that God is going to act and glorify himself. The prophets of Baal act in accord with their God, and they cut themselves. And even the scripture says in verse 28, they are gushing blood, and they're screaming, and they're wailing, and they're jumping all around, and they're trying to do what? Provoke the the God of Baal to act. Here's my point, and this is why I bring that text up. Who you worship dictates how you or uh, your God dictates how you worship. The prophets of Baal were acting in accord with the, the God of Baal. He wanted, they believed that it was, that their God is a, an obsessive God, a, 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 a God, a, a tyrannical God in the sense of, oh, he's not going to do anything for us, so let us, let us mutilate ourselves. Now look around you. Look at the society you live in. What God do you think is being worshipped? What God is worshipped in the distortion of sexuality and homosexuals? What God, that, that, that the conservative party has made their darling. The distortion of transgenderism. And I hate it because I do believe that many of these children are victims. They've been manipulated by people that ought to know better. And they're going to stand and give a great account for this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. Brothers and sisters, you can't just come and worship God any old way you want. You must be made clean and it must be from a pure heart, a pure mind. Why do you think we ask for uh, the forgiveness of sin at the beginning of worship? We want to be clean. If one thinks it's okay to murder their preborn child, it violates that cleanness, that moral cleanness. It violates, and it, it makes them unable to keep the second commandment. They can't come and worship God in a clean conscience. And I'm going to say this, and I think it's mostly true. I think most women, most, not all, there are exceptions, and that crowd may be large, but most women that have an abortion, it's my experience, they realize what happened, what they've done, and they carry an amazing amount of guilt and need help. But what do you need? What do they need to do to come and to worship God? They need to make their hearts clean. They need to, well, repent of their sin. They need to repent of that sin. But see, you can't, listen, you can't hold to that doctrine of repentance if abortion's okay. You can't do it. You, you can't say abortion is a right over here and then over here repent of it. Right? You see, that's inconsistent. What's our message to these women come to Christ 
and confess that sin and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you of that sin and he will receive you and accept you in the beloved. He will make you clean. You go dealing with the third commandment, of course, we talk about regulating of speech. And again, like I said, I am free to choose. A, it's a r- woman's right to choose. Well, how does that violate the third commandment? Well, it violates the third commandment because it's wrong. And all, all wrong and misleading truths about God is forbidden. We're not allowed to speak of God in an ill way. We're not allowed to even present God in an illogical way, in an unbiblical way. We're not allowed to get, make God what we want. The third commandment forbids us taking God and making him what we want him to be and then presenting him to others. And it's like this. I've heard it. God understands if you want to abort this child because of rape or incest. God understands if you want to kill that child. Because this is different. That's a direct violation of the third commandment. They have just ascribed to God a moral evil. Because murder is the unjust taking of all, what? Innocent life. And even though that was a horrific experience and event, which I think the rapist and the one involved in incest ought to be capital it ought to be capital punishment. We'd have a whole lot less. I mean, let's talk about helping women instead of saying to them, murder this child and you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. God understands. Those are lies. And that's a misrepresentation, a misrepresentation of God and that's a violation of the third commandment. Because you're not going to be happy when you do that. Listen, don't take one horrific event and turn it into two. But the one, that second one, see, the first one's not your fault. The second one will live with you the rest of your days. And we need to be telling these women this. We need to be, we, listen, we're salt and light, amen? We're the ones that ought to be going out. We're the ones that ought to be telling, preaching these messages, telling the truth. You don't have a right. According, and, of course, you, you may see all the stuff. Well, what is this, uh, this, this uh, uh, Senator-elect Warnock? who says God supports abortion. That's a direct violation of the third commandment. Now, do we think he is a real brother? I don't. I think he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And these are lies. And these lies have devastating effects upon those that listen to them. And they misrepresent the God of Scripture. They're not happy. They're not blessed. And that's why the media is never going to show you these women that will say, I did this and oh, how I regret this every day of my life. 
If I could take it back, I would. The fourth commandment regulates our time. Now, what does the Lord's Day have to do with abortion? Well, I mean, the fourth commandment is easy enough, right? There is one day in seven that we are to set apart to come and worship the Lord. And he says, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. In it. And it goes on to say how it should be kept. So how simply does it address this? Well, first of all, beloved, there are six days that we should do all our work. What is all this work? All that's lawful. Murdering your unpreborn child is not lawful. That's a violation. We're not allowed to take those six days that we've been given freedom to enjoy and labor in and to use them in sinful ways. You can't go rob a bank. You can't go murder the living and you can't go murder the preborn on those six days. You can't do anything on those six days that God tells you is forbidden. Now, that's the simple aspect of it. I could go into all of the other things that, in the way that the day ought to be kept and the sanctity of it and, and the idea that we are to ref, have a personal reflection between us and God and his word and we ought to carry out the command. All of that's related to the fourth commandment. All of these four commandments are related. I'm just speaking of it simply on its face so we can go talk to people. But there's a correlation here. The correlation is this, and it's always been true from the beginning of time. Those who keep the Sabbath day, those who set aside the Sabbath day to worship God do a much better job of living out those six other days. Do I need to say it again? How you treat in your mind and in your heart, the affections of the Lord's day will have a direct correlation to how each of the other six days will be treated. It's inescapable. If we abuse those six days in licentious living, Greedy living, lustful living, immoral living, we will have a no view to low view of the Lord's day. But many people will show up on the Lord's day. They'll live like hell six days a week. And they'll come on the Lord's day so that it may pay their, their sort of, their spiritual token in the coffer of God's favor and say, I've done my duty. But the fourth commandment says they're connected. How you carry out the fourth is how you live out the sixth, and how you live out the sixth is how you carry out the fourth. Because God gave us the seven-day week sovereignly, and he is sovereign over our time. He has called his people. Look, like the commandment says, Thy God, your God. This is your God of creation, and it is your God of deliverance. He has delivered you. He has redeemed you. He has set you apart, and now you are to serve him. You have a dual motivation to serve, to love, and to 
obey him in all of his commandments. Well, beloved, that's a simple, just a simple summary of those first four commandments. Next week, we're going to move to the second table because I, I really want to get to some of these arguments that, that are used um, for abortion and address them from the commandments in particular, as though I've done it a little bit here, but not like I want to. So let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do not pretend to be better. We don't pretend, Lord, that we are somehow just set apart from everything that's going on. Lord, we're part of the church. We're a part of this country. We are a part of this state. Lord, we, we know people. We have relationships, and those relationships... Lord, they spread all over the state, and we come, Lord, confessing that we can do better. We can address this moral evil for what it really is, which is a moral evil that is heinous in your sight. And And as you are showing us in this country, after millions upon millions of babies have been murdered, that this is having a devastating effect upon turning from this commandment of thou shalt not murder. So, Lord, we're acknowledging it. We're confessing it. Lord, we're asking you to use us, Lord, as you see fit. We're asking you to bless the efforts of the Georgia right to life and bless the efforts of Christians all over this state Lord, calling upon their representatives to pass this bill. Nothing else is acceptable, Lord, than a bill that completely eliminates abortion, period. And Father, in whatever whatever happens, would you give us the grace to abide upon it? Give us the grace, O Lord, to serve you, to love you, to worship you, Lord, to carry out, Lord, the obedience that you are worthy of and deserve. And Lord, just give us the, 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 all the grace needed in order, Lord, not to despair, but to continue the fight, to see that the, that the preborn are, 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 are heard and championed and, Lord, are protected. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.